Well, we're there, the end, the final one in our journey of um, however many weeks. Uh, believe it, big truths about God fitting that in this season of Advent that anticipates the fact that He is coming again, that we should end our series on this very subject, the consummation. That is the completion when God completes, brings to an end, brings together the work that He has started. That's what we look for and what we long for. The Bible says that God will complete the work that He's begun in you. Uh, Especially for those that live with you, that's a good thing. But an even greater thing is that God will finish the work that He began in this world. World From Genesis to Revelation, the beginning to the end. That's why Jesus could say, I am both the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning, the end, the author of life. The one who always will be. The one who was dead but now alive forevermore. So this doctrine, tremendous one that brings strength and life to every situation that we find in our lives. And yet, a doctrine that for us as Christians has so easily been weak in our theology. The strength of grip we might have on these things may be measured, I guess, by our answer to the question, how much does our belief that Jesus is coming again affect the way I live tomorrow, Monday? How does the fact that Jesus is coming again influence and impact and inform all that I do today, tomorrow, and in the days ahead? Alternatively, you may ask yourself the question, how much do I, do you long for his appearing. If ten was off the scale one end, you, you're desperate for it every waking moment, uh, and, and zero was, you don't even know if he is coming again. Where are you on the scale? Paul puts it like this. I fought the good fight, I finished the, the race, I've kept the faith. Now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, let's say it together, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Are you one of those? Are you one of those people that Paul was saying there's like a gang of us that's exploding across the world that are longing for His appearing, longing for Him to come Again, you see, I think as Christians, nice, respectable uh, Christians, we've shied away from this doctrine of Jesus coming again. And we've shied away from it because, maybe, we do not want to be associated with the end of the world is nigh brigade. The, the clapperboard, the sandwich board people that might shout at you in town, or those that are just fixated on the second coming. They know every little detail about it as if they are certain when the Bible does not make it clear. And they know the times and the dates inside out and upside down, and they know which way the beast will look and run and all of that stuff. And it leaves us wanting to distance ourselves just ever so Slightly. When we find ourselves with people who seem to know a lot more about the end of the world than Jesus, it makes us rightly nervous. If Jesus had said, study the Bible really hard, 
Read all the stuff, especially in Revelation. Then look very carefully at what's happening in the world and try and make the exact times and dates fit. Then I could understand why people do it. But Jesus said, no one knows. I don't even know. And the book's about me. So shake the next person that tells you by the hand. The cults are into this. And it makes Christianity cultish. Which is a shame because it does not need to be because it isn't. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses, for example, uh, they'll come to the door and often as their way in, they will offer you a copy of uh, the Watchtower magazine. Uh, I usually offer the same response to everyone who offers me a Watchtower magazine. I ask them to explain how the Watchtower magazine over the last hundred years, or since it's been public, uh, I forget the original date of publication, but there were publications before it, how over the sweep of the last century, that particular magazine has predicted the end of the world on certain occasions, and obviously got it wrong, why that magazine is, no, is not discredited amongst ordinary people like you and me. I've never had anyone be prepared to leave the Watchtower magazine with me after that. <laughs> but it's a very important question. Because we lift ourselves up about what the Bible says we should know, and says that we should know it. Be worried about people that talk very clearly about things the Bible says aren't clear and are pretty clueless about the things God says is really clear, like forgiveness and the cross and the resurrection and so on and so forth. And so rightly we distance ourselves because we're, we're, we're nervous. I think too we're often uh, nervous and maybe we shy away from this doctrine because people say, well, you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly use. And we don't like being thought of like that. And so we shy away from it. The trouble is, the doctrine of the uh, second coming, the consummation, whatever uh, language you choose to use, is far, far, far too important for us to hang loose with it. We cannot keep it in the distant background. It is a true understanding of what is coming that will help us to really live well now. If a day is coming, for example, when justice will be restored, if justice is the real deal, then that inspires me to work and live for justice now. If a day is coming when all suffering will end, if life without pain and suffering is the real life, if that's the real deal, then I am motivated to work to that end now. I am not aware of people who are gripped by all that Jesus will accomplish when He returns and remain apathetic about the state of the world. They go hand in glove. On the contrary, because of what we know will one day be true, we work for it, anticipate it, live within the joy of it, see it now. Isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray? Lord, your kingdom come on earth now as it is in heaven. Think about heaven and long for it to be true on earth. A clear, vivid, concrete belief of what is coming, far from causing us to sit back on a beach somewhere, inspires us to live for it and work for it now. And we sing that, don't we, in the hymn, for all the saints who from their labours rest, uh, uh, fourth verse, fifth verse, 
Third verse goes like this. And when the strife is fierce, the warfare long, far off we hear the distant triumph song. So we're in the midst of the battle. We hear and see with eyes and ears of faith one day when it will be different. What do we do? Sit back and wait? No. And hearts are brave again and arms are strong. Hallelujah. It's not escapist to long for His appearing. It's the essential partner of engagement and compassion in our world. And I know that true in my own experience. The more I get involved in people's sadness and struggle, the more I long for the day when it's over. The more graves I stand by, the more I long for the day when that will be no more. Surely, it's those who are fighting on the front line against injustice who most long for a new heaven and a new earth when all is just. Surely it's those who care most about the suffering in the world who long for the day when God Himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. It's those who are hardest at work at spreading the Gospel who long most for the prophecy in Jeremiah to become true when everybody knows the Lord. And we no longer need to share Him with our neighbour. Tucked away, a beautiful verse in Jeremiah 31. Surely it's those who are most engaged in prayer, that long to see Him face to face. Why? Because it's those in the heat of the battle who most long for victory. I don't know where you are at the end of 2009. I don't know how strong is your longing for that final victory. Maybe even as I'm talking now, you're becoming aware it's not as strong as perhaps you thought it was. And maybe, and I ask myself the same question, maybe we're not as close to the heat of the battle, therefore, as we thought we were. I read these words by Michael Lloyd, who uh, works for St. Paul's Theological College that comes out of HTB, and found them extremely challenging. Do we long for the appearing of Christ and the putting right of the world's wrongs? Or have we made our peace with the current compromised state of the world? Have we become so inured to the injustices of our world, because our lifestyles are so dependent upon them, that we harbour no hatred for them in our hearts? The amount that we long for the appearing of Christ is probably the amount we oppose evil. If we want to know how much compassion we have, we merely have to ask ourselves how much we long for the coming of the one who will heal all the hurts and bind up the broken hearts. I find myself saying I long, but I need to long a lot more. So what's the big idea, the big thought about the consummation about Jesus coming again? The big thought is this, Jesus wins. In case, uh, in case, well, God wins, for example. Uh, in case you're, you're, you're wondering that the whole idea of, of Jesus coming again and wrapping up uh, history in time and space is, is a mystical notion that isn't really there in the roots and guts of the Bible, then, then do a quick search of the New Testament. There are 250 references just in the New Testament about Jesus coming again in time and space and bringing history to a close. 
This isn't a take it or leave it. This is ingrained in the very uh, uh, pages of the Bible. It's unambiguous that a day will come when he will return, not as the baby, but as the king and lord of all. And Jesus told lots of parables that reminded the people that that will happen even though it might not look like it will now. Jesus told lots of parables that reminded them that as you survey what's going on in the world, you see evil and good, and it's like they're side by side. Sometimes you see good uh, a championing. Other times it seems, perhaps more often, that evil is overcoming the goodness that's in the world. They're there, twi- intertwined together. You'll know that's true in your life. There's good about you and, and there's not so good about you. All mixed in together. Such is the world in which we live. And Jesus says, look, there's going to be a harvest. And he told several parables. For example, the parable of the weeds. He said, look, it's like this. This world that's got good and evil, it all seems all mixed up. It seems like it's all intertwined. It's all there together. No, one day there'll be a harvest. The wheat and the weeds that are left to grow together, then when they are harvested, they are separated. Then he told the parable of the dragnet. He said the fishermen go out and they, they, they throw out their nets and they drag in all kinds of fish. But it's not all kinds of fish that the fishermen want. And they sort out the fish. There's a separation at the end. The parable of the sheep and the goats. They all stay in the same field. They all graze on the same grass. But at night, the shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And so Jesus says, be very careful that you see what's true even when it might not look like it's true. What you see is not the only truth. It's not the ultimate deal. Good and evil that seems so linked, so inseparable. It's hard for us to imagine that one day that will be true, but it will be. There will be a separating out. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they'll weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. God will win. God will win over what? God will win over sin. The Bible begins with introducing us to a new order. We went right back to the beginning of Genesis. There was a new order that the whole of the Bible almost was going to talk about. began in chapter 3. The serpent came. Adam and Eve followed the serpent. They went against God. And a new order began. It was the reign of sin and death. Because of this, God says, you will die. Because of this, you will suffer. Because of this, work will be hard. A new rule came to the earth. But then the Bible ends with increasing glimpses of the day when what was once the new order will one day become the old order. Hallelujah. As God ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. God will win. For the old order of things will pass away. And when we talk about Jesus on the cross and he cried, it is finished, quite literally he was saying, uh, I I finished the work God's given me to do. I've, I've paid fully for people's salvation. But equally, at the same time, when Jesus cried, it is finished, he might just as well have been saying, it is finished. This world with rain and sin and death is finished. It's over. It's been dealt the fatal blow. You know, there's always a point in a fight, isn't there? How many fights do you have, I hear you say? There's always a point in a fight when there's the fatal blow on the telly I'm thinking about now. When it's over, 
It might not be literally completely over, but essentially it's finished. In the boxing match, if we can use such uh, dubious sports to illustrate a godly point. Uh, There's a moment when the killer blow strikes the other boxer's head or body, and it's over. There's that final goal when the commentator goes, it's all over now. When Jesus died on the cross, when he cried in those last moments, he was saying, it's all over now. Hallelujah. It's all over now. All over now. The old order has passed away. God wins over sin. God wins over over death. Sin brought the reign of death. So also the grace that comes from Jesus might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life there will be a day when death will be no more. And so we uh, read the, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. There is no one here who's been close to death I don't mean themselves necessarily, although that might be true, but close to death in the sense of someone they love who does not know the deep meaning of those words. All too easy for us on a happy, sunny Sunday morning to say there'll be a day when death is over. It doesn't touch us because we keep death right over there. Until those moments in our lives we can't, we have to look at it face on. And it's, it's frightening and it's ugly and it's a monster that's there and we try and keep it at the back. Hey, know this, the monster has been dealt a fatal blow. A day is coming when it's over. And then finally, God wins over, over the devil. Uh, we don't often read the Christmas story in the book of Revelation. You'd be surprised to some of us that there is the Christmas story in the book of Revelation. We think of the Christmas story being in Matthew and in Luke. Matthew talks about the wise men. Uh, Luke talks about the shepherds uh, and all the rest of it. But we know that when earthly things are taking place, they are but a representation of what's happening in another world, a spiritual world that we cannot see. And so the book of Revelation chapter 12 tells the Christmas story from a cosmic perspective. Tells the story from the perspective of what was happening, the fight, the war that was going on in the heavenly place. And so whilst we might think that the reason uh, that Jesus, that Joseph took Jesus and they escaped down into Egypt as they did soon after he was born in order to protect Jesus from Herod, you see from the book of Revelation that Herod was acting out what was happening in the heavenly place where Satan and all his foes were standing almost literally, it says, at the foot of the bed of Mary ready to snatch the child. And God saved the child. Because God is in control. And right there in the middle of that story of, the, uh, of a heightened uh, demonic activity as the light of the world was physically born here on earth, we get this uh, wonderful, wonderful verse that just reminds us that it might be a right fight going on And the reason that it's a right fight just now, the reason the devils are raging like mad in the cosmic world is because they know, and the devil himself, he knows, his time is short. His time is short. Coming to an end, God wins over the devil. And so no wonder 
Peter would say, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's at his wit's end. Because he believes in the end more than we do sometimes. So God wins. God wins. And it would be nice if that was the whole truth. It would be nice if that was the whole gospel. The Bible says that whilst God wins, many lose. Many lose. Jesus put it like this. He talked about gates. He said, look, there's a narrow gate. Few people are going to find that. That's the gate you want. There's a big broad gate and people are going to tumble in through that gate, hardly noticing they've passed the entrance. Many, said Jesus, will lose. And we can't anticipate the moment of God winning without being honest about the moment of God judging the world in which we live. How can he wrap history up and leave this world unaccounted for? And so there are so many references in the New Testament about Jesus coming in the end as judge. He will judge the living and the dead. There will be an appointed time when all things will be judged. All things will be brought into the light. Even the deepest motives of our hearts will be exposed. The Lord will come and he will judge everyone. And it's not the easiest part of the gospel for us to be honest about. It doesn't really fit in with the whole Christmas thing, although it's there far more than we care to imagine. There is this inescapable truth, the Bible says. And we'd be dishonest, we'd be less than loving to one another if we lived as though it wasn't there. A man and a woman is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's the deal. And we're anxious to be, we're right to be anxious when we speak about these things. Strikes me that when we're not very anxious about what it might mean for God to judge that we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. It is indeed, as the writer to the Hebrews summarizes, a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We wouldn't want to be foolish and ignore it or pretend it wasn't there. We wouldn't want to do what Jesus pleaded that the people wouldn't do. What do you do when there's something you don't like? You dig a little hole in the sand and you stick your head in it. And Jesus said, whatever you do, don't stick your head in the sand on this one. Don't act like it isn't there. You'll be less than loving to those you love most. As it was in the days of Noah, Jesus said, when they thought nothing was going to happen, they all made fun of him because they thought the whole judgment thing was a complete joke. Just like that. That's how it will be. So don't stick your head in the sand. The thing about God's judgment is that I don't stand a chance. Do you? I don't stand a chance. All those things I thought I'd got away with. All those things I had long forgotten. All those dark sides to me that I put so much energy into keeping out of view from others. All of it laid bare. And if God came at the end of time and simply judged, 
If God came at the end of time and simply pronounced judgment on your life and mine, we couldn't argue with that or complain or say, hey, that's not fair. There would be nothing that we could say in the face of His judgment. Look at the mess of the world. Look at the abuse of it, the tragedy within it, the brokenness that characterizes it. Who's responsible for the pig's ear of the world that we've made? We are responsible. Collectively, we are. And it would be impossible to argue if he came as a judge. And yet, the wonder of Christmas is that he comes not as a judge. There were plenty of names that they could have given Jesus that would have given that message. But they said, no, give him the name Jesus. Because he comes not as a judge, but as a saviour to save his people from their sins. Yet even in the midst of that coming, there are all kinds of clues that many are going to lose. So John writes about the fact that Jesus came into the world and people didn't recognize him. Incredibly, even the religious Jewish people didn't recognize him. He came to his world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Many lost. Many will lose. Yet, to all who received him. To those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. God wins and He gives people the right to join His team. God's biggest win, you see, this is the deal in the end. God wins, many lose, God's biggest win, though, is you. God's biggest win is you. See, God's biggest win is not conquering sin. God's biggest win is not even eliminating death or vanquishing uh, this whole universe from the devil and his influences. God's biggest win is you. Why did the man... Uh, cross the river and climb the mountain and, and, uh, and go through all kinds of challenges with milk tray in his hand. Because the woman loves milk tray. No, because he loves the woman. That's why. Because he loves the woman. Why did God conquer these things? Because he loves you. Because He loves you. That He might bring many sons to glory. God's biggest win is not the sin and death, but it's you. That's the biggest win. And that's why He said, hey, I'm coming back, not just to see that it's all been sorted out, but I'm coming back for you. That's why I'm coming. I'm coming back for you. God's biggest win is you. Will you be on his team? Playground football. It might be the same with netball and all those stranger games that people play. But there's a moment in the game when you know that all that matters is being on the same team as, who should we say? Who was it for you? Tom's team. Everyone who was on Tom's team 
wins. Because Tom is so much better than everybody else. Compared to Tom, the rest of the team's contribution is negligible to say the least. And so there becomes a moment in the game when you realise your only hope there in that playground is to join Tom's team. And so you do. It's as easy as that. You swap sides mid-game so that when the final whistle blows, you know you're on the right team. There is a star of the show and his name is Jesus. And my prayer for each one of us is that we will realise that compared to him, our contribution is negligible. That the Bible says our contribution is like filthy rags. That we will realise that our only hope before the final whistle blows is to swap sides. And unlike in the playground where they told you to shove off, you joined that team, you can jolly well stick with them. Jesus' team will welcome you with open arms. But when the final trumpet call, when the final whistle blows, you're on the team that wins. Only because you're with the winner. Let's pray.